0: If you want to learn to train and run agility at the highest levels under pressure, there is nobody better to have as a role model than Jennifer Crank. She's won every major agility competition in the U.S. And she's won multiple individual medals, overall medals at the FCI Agility World Championships. She's done a lot of this with different dogs and she's just an incredible human being. So I'm really excited to have her on the show. I caught up with her after her big win at Westminster last summer. And I know you're going to get a ton out of this episode. Welcome to the 12th episode of the Kathy Keats Show. Jen, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm so happy that you're here. First of all, congratulations. You're coming off a big win at Westminster. That must have been a pretty thrilling moment, but you often have thrilling moments because you're such a great handler. I've often said to people that if I had a dream team, you'd be the person I'd want on that team because you always seem to come through on the crunch. So uh, so thanks for being here and tell me a little bit about uh, Westminster for you this year.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It was an honor to be here. You know, the famous Kathy Keats. I'm very excited to be here. Um, Westminster was very thrilling this year. And I think the biggest thing that made it so very exciting was the shock of being announced the overall winner. Um, You know, I do a lot of preparing and training and getting ready for these big events and I would be lying to you if I didn't say that I was going into these events with the hope of doing well. Sure. But for Westminster and the way the scoring is, my hope of doing well was to make the finals. And yeah, maybe if I had that really spectacular win, winning the height... And it never crossed my mind this year of the possibility of being the overall. So it was true shock. I had a couple of people ask me, were you really surprised or was that all acting? And I can honestly say I was genuinely, truly surprised. So that shock and excitement... Uh, kind of still going on here a week or two later was really thrilling for me. A little bit different than the last year I won where I did know before the award ceremony that I had won. So they kind of spoiled it this year. They did not spoil it. So it was real
0: shock. So super exciting week for me. Well, you know, a couple of things you said there I find really interesting because certainly sometimes you prepare and you are hoping to go well. And I don't think anyone who's really competitive ever goes to the line thinking I don't have a chance. I think you always go to the line thinking you have a chance if you are a competitive person, because, you know, things can go sideways or well at any given moment for anybody. Right. But also, it's funny that people seem to often do really well when they aren't expecting it. Isn't that true? I would 100 percent agree with that. And I can
1: tell you a million stories uh, of situations where I felt really confident and I, I went out for the win. You know, I went to go for it and I went for the win and just crashed in other scenarios, many, many scenarios where I said, this is me and my dog. I'm going to go have the best run that we can have. Uh, in many cases, never really felt like the win or whatever the goal was, was even in play. And as a result, had a fantastic performance. And, you know, the recent one was AKC Nationals with my young border collie, High Five. I said all along that I would not be going to Nationals if she was the only dog I was taking. She was my only dog. I would not go. She needs more time. She needs more experience, but I'll throw her in the car. I'm driving. It was no big deal. And she just exceeded my expectations. She was clean in every run except the finals. And I I attribute that to the fact that when we got to the finals, I was just happy to be there. I didn't even care (laughs) if she ran clean. And clearly my performance showed it, Um, you know, in other scenarios where I was like, I've got Stop this. I'm going to go for the win. And then we crash and burn. So absolutely just, you know, playing the game with my dogs and, and not having that uh, go for it. And just me and
0: them really paid off. You know, it's funny because I think a lot of the time people go to events and they think they have to be somebody different than what they practice. And, you know, they get, like you said, these outcome ideas in their head. And that's usually when everything comes apart because they're just trying way too hard. And like you said, it usually turns into a dog's breakfast. At the same time, when you prepare for something, like you said, you have an expectation of doing at least decently, you know, like not embarrassing yourself while you're there. I want to talk a little bit about preparation. If you were to say What is the one big thing that people don't do enough of in preparing for an event? What would you say it is? That's a tricky
1: question. Um, I would say, and I don't know if this is, if I say the right answer, but I don't know that handlers do enough specific to my sport agility of kind of preparing for all different stages, meaning in the, in the case of agility, they're not balancing work on small skills with also work on courses. What I find is a really strong shift of people who want to just go out, set a course, run a course, set a course, run a course, set a course, run a course. Or you see the handlers who do the opposite. They want to do all these skills at one or two jumps and they're not balancing across the um, you know field of, of what they're going to need. It's all of it. You need to have the skills. You need to be able to do the individual element. But doing it when it's obstacle six of an eight obstacle drill is very different than doing it as obstacle 19 of a 22 obstacle course. The flip side being, if all you're doing is courses, are you really being super, super detailed? Are you really breaking it down and saying, I could have saved a stride there? Or are you just thinking, let me see if I can survive the course? So I think for a lot of preparation, it's the balance of you know, the skills and being, making sure that every stride, every step, every jump is taken exactly how you want, but then being able to both mentally and physically put it together with the length on a 22 obstacle course. So I think it's the the balance. They're not preparing, they're not preparing the, the balanced aspect
0: of things. So when you do that, are you thinking of it seasonally or are you doing that all the way along? Like, are you with, or, or, or developmentally where the dog is?
1: I think not seasonally. Um, I'm like, I don't know which the other ones, but definitely not seasonally for me. I think it's more developmentally for the dogs. Um, For me personally, I do not like running courses. I have to force myself to run courses. I have to make dates with my training partners and go, okay, guys, we're going to meet on this day at this time and we're going to do a course. Because if I have you know, 15, 20 minutes, I much prefer to work skills. But it's also been interesting lately um, through some of the online teaching that I've been doing. I found myself doing very different things for the different dogs and, and students were asking questions. You know, why, why were you doing this with B and doing it this way with high five? And there is a reason. It just wasn't really a conscious reason until the question was asked. And when I had to answer the question, it was because of where they were at developmentally and in their progression. You know, B was prepping for EO. So we are doing a lot of coursework. We're getting ready. Her skills are pretty good. High five, less experience, less on the journey. We needed to pinpoint more of the skills. So they were noticing this trend of more coursework with B and more isolated drill work with high five that was happening without me really, I don't want to say it wasn't conscious. Obviously when I was going out to train, the training was very um, conscious, but in the big picture as an outside observer, they noticed it before I noticed it.
0: Right. I think that's really true for a lot of us who've been training for a long time. There's that element of expert blindness. It's like, do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) Yes. I have said that many times (laughs) because we kind of feel the flow of how that dog is. And it's not to say that we never go back and do those little pieces with the dogs that are more experienced if they need it or we feel like I I can feel something's going a little sideways here. But you are focusing more on bigger picture or smaller picture, depending on the developmental stage, just like you would with say a basketball team. If, If it's a brand new team, you're going to work on it. If they're NBA stars, they might still need to work on passing and shooting, but it's at a different level. The preparation around it, the proofing that's happening, because what their fundamental piece is, is different at that level than what someone who's starting out, their fundamental piece is different.
1: Yeah, and I I mentioned that I don't do a lot seasonally, but I guess in thinking about it, I, I do it a little bit because as I get closer and closer to the big event... I get more fearful of doing big stuff because of injury. Right. So I actually find that, you know, six, eight, 12 weeks out, I'll do more coursework. And like the closer, you know, two weeks out, you'll hear people use that phrase, well, I got to put them in bubble wrap. So you go out and do little things um, in, in skills and make sure they're sharp on their skills for fear of not hurting them physically. So there's always that component, which really isn't the training, it's the physical side, but that does play a role in my uh, preparation for events as well.
0: What do you say to people who feel like they, they themselves feel like they're not ready if they don't do courses before going to a bigger event, because you've been doing it for a long time. So you, you know, if you've been trialing a bit, you're going to feel sharp enough as a handler so you can afford to, you know, kind of put them more in bubble wrap and do smaller bits. But what about the people who are feeling like I won't be ready to run at my timing will be off. I'm not going to have the feel. What do you say to people like that? Well,
1: generically, when somebody tells me they don't feel ready, I always say that's a good thing. If you feel ready, you're too ready. You're too cocky. You're never going to feel ready. The week before any big event, I am always like, I'm cramming for the exam. And I, I recently have a student. They're like, you say that every big event. I'm like, but that's how I feel. I got to get out there and get these training sessions in. Um, and the reality of it is I ne- I've never really gone to an event saying, I'm ready for this. There's always something that I'm not ready. Um, but specific to the course aspect, I've heard that so many times um, of, oh, well, I got to be trialing. I can't take a break from trialing. That's where I see it a lot more than I feel personally so many students tell me they can't take long breaks from trialing because they feel like their timing is off and it's not the same to just train because the dog gets that little extra speed or that little extra adrenaline so it's not even the course but they have to say trialing uh, you know i'll say why don't you give your dog a four or six week break from trials just do more casual training. Well, i can't my timing will get off um and that's not something that I personally experience. I feel like I can go six weeks without showing. And if my next event was a big event, I'd be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of think of it like the, the riding the bike. Like I could not tell you the last time I rode a bike, but if you put one in front of me, I would be comfortable getting on it and riding it down to the end of the driveway. But I think that's where you start getting into kind of people's mindset and the mental aspect. If they feel they need to be trialing, then you might as well let them trial. Because if I force them to say, no, you can't trial, you can't take a break, whether or not their timing is off, whether or not they are ready, they are going to go into it feeling not ready. So, you know, regardless of whether it's best for the dog or not, you know, bearing any dog that physically was having some issues, let them let them show because it'll give them the confidence that they need. Like, okay, I just came off of a trial. Our timing is good. I know what that adjustment in speed is from training versus trialing. Um, because, because yeah, if that's if that's what mentally you have decided you need, then go ahead and do it. Um, For me personally, I don't feel like I have to be trialing before I go to those big events or or even coursework. Uh, But I do think, you know, again, in our sport, I do think there's a big difference between being able to do something on six or eight obstacles, even up to like 10 to 15 and 22. The Mm -hmm. number of times I have seen a backside on number 19 of a 22 obstacle course. And in the United States, our courses end at 17 or 18. So we're not even making it to 19 in trials and in training, let alone it be a backside. So I do think there is a lot of value on the physical aspect of the handler being able to, you know, not only physically run that yardage, but mentally stay on it. You know, you get one little mistake or bobble and you recover from that, but then it puts you a half a second behind. for the next thing, and all of a sudden you're really far behind, you know, you can't recreate that that saving of mistakes or recovery rather um, when you're just doing short drills. So I do think there's definitely the value in doing the length and the longer stuff.
0: Yeah, I always joke about when you make that first little, mistake or something. It's like the avalanche just got released behind you and now you're trying to stay. (laughs) Yes, I refer to it as that snowball effect. It starts out as a little snowball and it rolls down the hill and all of a sudden you're just taken out, you know. So you said something interesting and this is something I think is an element we don't talk about enough is the idea of the reason you can drop into your handling and not practice, say, or not, not practice, but not be doing long courses in uh, that period of time, is obviously you have a teamwork and a timing and a trust with your dogs. The, it doesn't feel like your timing has to be on a, a split second hair trigger kind of thing, where if it's it's not right there, it, it's all going to come apart. So obviously, you've got a way of communicating with your dogs and a way of your timing where you've built a window in for your timing, because otherwise, if you had to be split second all the time, like instant, it would be harder to be able to just jump in and go. So what do you do with your training to sort of think about that idea of building, and it's my phrase, so I'm kind of throwing it out there, but building a window with your timing with your dog's?
1: I think so much of it for my dogs is in thinking about that kind of window in that timing is in visual connection. And I know that word connection is thrown around a lot. It's like a go-to term. Oh, you got to connect with your dog. you got to have that connection with them. But but what really does that mean? And and the reason I like to say like kind of a visual connection is to me, when I think connection, I'm talking visibly looking at my dog, not in my dog's general direction, not off out of the peripheral going, oh yeah, there's a black fuzzy thing running over there, but to see my dog at every moment. For me, agility runs very slow. It's very slow. I can have a 29 second run. That's what it was at Westminster. And I can tell you exactly how many strides she put in. I can tell you where she barked at me on course. I can tell you where her eyeballs were. And it's visually I'm watching. And I'm, I'm seeing what needs to happen and seeing, oh, her eyes flinched over there or, oh, she added a stride. Or, oh, she left out a stride. You know, I can see when they leave out a stride and that tends to be what B wants to do, leave it out, <laughs> not add it in. She leaves it out, how that's then going to change the line for the next several obstacles. And the more I teach, the more I realize how hard or how rare that is. Mm-hmm. I will have students whose dogs don't do an obstacle. And they will not know. They will get done with the sequence. And they and I look at them and I'm like, well, that was great. Except and they're like, what? What happened? What went wrong? And I'm like, you miss an entire <laughs> obstacle. Like that's not, that's not a small element. Um, but they didn't see it. Right. And You know, I know you and I have talked about this before, but for me, that connection is so natural because I learned this sport so young. So it is something that I take for granted and I I appreciate my students who struggle with it reminding me that it is something that has to be worked at. My spatial awareness is very good, always has been for any sport, you know, not necessarily specific to agility, but where I don't have to spend a lot of time a lot of of my time and effort looking to see where the equipment is or where I'm going, I can look at a course map and within 30 seconds, be ready to run. I don't need to walk it. I don't need to see the course. Give me one pass and I'm ready to go. Um, That is something that I've worked very hard to acquire. I mean, yes, I have the spatial awareness, but I've worked very hard at that. But what that allows me to do is to then, dedicate all of my energy into watching my dog so at any given point I can look at them and see oh the ears flicked back or their head turned or they added a stride or they left a stride out Um, all of those things allow me to then make the adjustment for the next section of the course or for setting the next line so I think for me that's what allows that kind of buffer on time and that that connection and allowing me to adjust. Um, you know, I think one of the number one questions I get is how do you manage running so many different dogs, the different sizes and different adjustments and, and what I'm doing is the same, right? If I'm doing a front cross, I'm doing a front cross. What's I'm changing is how the dog responds and therefore I'm watching them to see. And yes, it is knowing them, as you said, it's the relationship and the timing and in the fact that we've been a team for a long time, but I think the visual connection. Not just, I don't want to use that generic connection, that cliche connection word, but visually watching my dog and seeing exactly what's happening.
0: You are singing to the choir on that one because I did, I think a whole course on the idea of connection because I was so frustrated with people throwing that term around because it's like, it's, it's like you're late. There's the answer. You're late. Well, honestly. There's a lot more to it than just simply you're late. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And, and I, you know, what's interesting is, you know, the next question that comes up with people is, well, how do you not run into things? And one of the things I've always done is make people walk courses with their eyes closed. And then I would always put someone beside them. So they hopefully wouldn't spear themselves on an obstacle. So the person was supposed to stop them from spearing themselves on an obstacle. I always make sure they sign their waiver before they do the drill. (laughs) But uh, because, you know, in that idea of preparation that we were talking about, if that's an area of weakness, most people don't realize it that connection with the dog and I'll use the term and I agree with you visual connection if I see the eyes flick it's helping me anticipate they might be about to make a bad decision absolutely right and so if I can't see that I can't make those minute adjustments like we do driving like you'd be swerving all over the road all the time and that's the big thing is if someone doesn't realize if they say I can't watch my dog all the time well then In breaking down where you're having problems, you need to go work on your spatial awareness. Correct. Yep. And that's, I think, where we don't do a very good job sometimes, either as coaches or instructors or people don't put in the work to improve in that sense.
1: Yeah. So at Westminster, you know, the big highlight I think so many people are focusing on with my Westminster performances Be Winning. And what's been very overlooked to my advantage is the fact that I also made finals with Rio, my 12-inch Sheltie. So she was the 12-inch representative of Sheltie's. I was so excited. Didn't think that would happen either, but I fell. (laughs) (laughs) I fell flat on my face. And so... I'm glad people are remembering that, but there's a moral of this story. So people keep asking, well, what, what happened? Do you know why did you get your foot caught? And, and I keep saying, oh, I can tell you exactly what happened stride by stride. So for those of you listening, if you want to go back and watch the run after this, I'll tell you. <laughs> what happened? I released her over jump one. When she landed over jump one, there was a camera to her right that then moved when she moved because it was, it was a camera held on her because she was on a sit stay. When she released, it tracked to follow her. She saw the camera and went, whoa, what was that? She dodged left to kind of avoid the camera. Well, when she dodged left, it looked to me as though she was getting ready to run around jump two. So I I was already in motion to go in for my front cross, but when I saw that she was about to come around jump number two, I leaned right. Well, my upper body went right and my <laughs> lower body went left. She took <laughs> jump two, which was good because I leaned in. But at that point we were off kilter and I fell and rolled. So the fact that that's how it played out in my head. And if you watch it back, it happened so quick. Like I've watched it back and people are like, I can barely even see her jog off her line it happened. I saw it happen. I saw her eyes turn to the camera. I saw her dodge left and I tried to recover, which the good news is I had enough connection to recover. The bad news is I probably would have been fine if I didn't see it. She was, she did look like she ended up was going to take two. She just wanted to go around the camera person. So had I not, saw all that happening, had that not unfolded right in front of my eyes, I maybe didn't fall because I just would have been going for my front cross. But that's the level of like connection <laughs> that I'm talking about. So it can be a good thing and in a few cases a bad thing, but <laughs> you'll live and like, Hey, I had a mistake because I have really good connection. So I guess I have to be proud of that. Right.
0: That's hilarious. <laughs> I think we've all had one of those where, you know, we've wiped out dog's breakfast, taken out a piece of equipment, whatever it is. But, but to the point, what does everybody remember? They remember the other stuff. They remember the other right. people, or they remember the win, or they remember that, all that. And, you know, it is a really a good commentary on, we all think everybody's watching us. And at the end of the day, they aren't. I mean, they oh, might absolutely. be, but, you know, it really, nobody remembers, you know, the year after, the year after, the year after, who came in first, second, third, you know, years prior, really. agree.
1: I tell my students that all the time. Tell me who was third place in the eight inch class in 2014. Yeah. You know, they don't know. In the moment, it feels like, you know, a total embarrassment or letdown or disappointment, but give it some time.
0: Yeah, exactly. So how do you mentally, um, you're kind of known for being the person who can come through when it counts. Like you are really, you know, it's like, if, if it's coming down to the wire, I'm putting my money on Jen kind of thing. So how do you have any specific thing that happens that's different for you at those kind of moments than during regular runs mentally?
1: I do. I do
0: think that I have a
1: little bit different mentality on, um, if I think about it as like a team run or an individual run. And I don't know that that's a great comparison because, you know, you want to come through whether it's team or individual, but there is some aspect that's different when a team is depending on you, whether it's a, a USDA dam team or whether it's like Team USA at WAO um, versus a run that, say, at AKC Nationals, if I go out and botch, it stinks for me, but nobody else is really going to feel that letdown. Um, either way, you know, you want to perform. I'm not sure that I 100% know if I do anything special or unique um, I've been told by many people, you know, okay, if we need somebody to get the job done, go get Jen. She can get it done. Um, I guess maybe because I've kind of got that reputation, I get a lot of practice with it. Um, (laughs) I get called up a lot to say, Hey, get the job done, be the anchor of the team. Um, I, I think maybe on any given course, there is some strategic elements of you know what I might do on a team run versus an individual run or the level of risk that I would take. I'm not sure in my mental preparation um, that there's a lot different. I'm a pretty Debbie Downer pre-run. I'm very uh, pessimistic. Those that are very close to me know that. I'm a pretty pessimistic. I don't know if I can do this. We're going to have a mistake there. Um, I do think I am a little bit more... Uh, verbally or externally pessimistic than I am inside. Inside, I do, I do believe in myself. I do believe in my dogs. I've done a lot of great things. And I, I try to remember, you know, I've, I've been in situations with more pressure and I've been able to do it. Um, you know, I can do this. I think it's the, the fear of not wanting to come across as arrogant or cocky. Mm -hmm. therefore I'm always, I don't want to walk around, but we got this, you know, we can do this. So I do get very nervous for team runs. Very nervous. Uh, I put on a good act. I'm a very good actor that I get very nervous and I try not to let that um, be seen. I don't want to make other people nervous. I don't want to make other teammates or coaches nervous. Um, But I don't know that, I don't know that I could pinpoint it. it. I don't know what the magic trick is that allows me to be able to follow through. I do think a lot of practice in big high pressure situations so the question is like well how do you get there you know how do you get to a point where you can be put in that position over and over again to be able to get that practice i know there's that that quote of, or, you know, I don't know if it's actual statistics that 90% of the winning is done by 10% of the people. I do get myself in those situations a lot, and therefore I get a lot of practice. They're not always successful. So even when I fail, I learn from that and grow from that versus somebody who's in their first ever national finals and it's the first time they've ever had a chance to practice that they might not make a national final for three more years. Right. So when you're not getting to practice it, but once every, even if you, even if it's just once a year, you do one big event a year, your special, your breed specialty um, or a national event or whatever. um, I'm being put in those situations a lot more and multiple dogs helps. Right. So at Westminster I had two dogs in finals versus the one. Um, So I think I've learned and grown a lot through practice the first time I ever was at uh, the FCI world championships and my dog knocked a bar, I cried in the locker room for like hours. (laughs) And now I look back on, it, I'm like, it was a great run. He just knocked a bar. But at the time uh, it was my first big event. And I felt like I had let people down. Um, Some would say that the fact that my first big event was a team run influenced. I was 17. You know, it was a very influential, influential moment. So that, that affected. And that's, you know, why I am the way I am now versus an individual run. Uh, but, you know, experience, I think that's, that's been my biggest teacher
0: mm-hmm. up to this point. Well, you know, it's funny because um, when you do have lots of opportunities, and it might not all be in the same sport. What I find is I quite often talk to people who are, you know, like brilliant at their careers and brilliant at, and, and they come into agility and they don't carry that success with them. And I think that's something I've been quite lucky with is I've done a number of different things, but I I carried that success with me. So when I went into a new big event in a different activity, it's still just an event. Like I could still see the relativity of it in terms of it's just, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's another event. Just, you know, it's the agility equipment's the same. I'm, you know, my dog and me, I just have to focus on my dog. So the more experience I got, the more I was able to go into events for the first time, even if it was my first time at that sports new big event and be able to have a bit more perspective on it. So yeah, I agree. And that's what I always tell people when they get these opportunities to go to regional events or new opens and they're scared to go because of all the good people who are gonna be there. I always say, I'd much rather have, be in a position where I have an opportunity to learn with the best And because people would absolutely, you know, are craving getting those opportunities to and you know that when you get near the top, you're still craving you want to be with people better than you because you want to be pushed.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think that's sort of the the place that you'd never want to be the best because then it's like what now?
1: Oh, I, I absolutely recall a, talking to Sylvia Turkman after she won the world championships and won gold. And she said, it just wasn't the motivator. Uh, she won gold and it was like, well, now what? Mm-hmm. Now what do you do? Versus when she won silver. Mm-hmm. And when she won silver, it's like, ah, she, you know, she wanted it. She was like, now there was all this motivation for the next year to um, you know, go out there. There was room to grow and, and learn. And I, I will never forget thinking that You know, every time, you know, you don't have that win, it's like you what's what's the you either win or you learn. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's a great motivator to be with great people, even if you fail. Absolutely. Right? It's great if you're great with great people and you do great with them. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun too. I'm not going to try to deny that. But uh, even if you you know, you know, make it to the finals and fall flat on your face, literally, yeah. <laughs> you can still learn from it, look back on it um, and know that, that there was a takeaway from it for sure.
0: Yeah. You said something interesting. Um, you said that you can um, sometimes prior to an event or before, prior to a run that you sometimes aren't. the most positive in terms of the way you're looking at things. Um, I find that for a lot of people, when they're near the top, it's almost like they're creating motivation by scaring themselves on purpose. So that they're creating that. Okay, I I need, I can feel my energy needs to be up. I need to be sharper. I need to feel like, and so that's almost a way of creating that for themselves in a way. Do you think that's what you're doing at all? I think it absolutely could be, Um, you know, maybe a little bit uh,
1: subconscious at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then maybe a little bit more conscious, uh, you know, recently at uh, WAO, I kind of had that exact scenario. Now that, you, now that you're saying that out loud, I kind of had that exact scenario. It was the end of the day, it was late. i had had a really bad run and, and we still had finals to go and I was in finals, but I was like, I'm over it. Let's just go. I don't even care if I run this run. <laughs> it's not going to go good. And then like, I started watching finals and then I started getting like, Oh no, like can I do this? Oh wait, I can do this. No, I don't know if I can do this. Oh, that dog looked good. Oh, it made a mistake. And like I started like working myself up. I knew I had to, I had to do something um, to get myself some adrenaline and some excitement and get going again because I was I was ready to um walk away after a bad run. So I do think it was a coping mechanism, right? I started watching dogs and they would they would get it, and I'd be encouraged. And then a really nice dog would have a mistake, and then you're say, thinking, "Oh, well, my, that might happen to my dog." Um, so yeah, I think it absolutely could be a, a motivator to you know give me that uh, push to go out there and, and that focus to really go out and, and nail it and get, the, as you said, get the job done. Um, I also think it's really rewarding when you do pull through. What's the phrase? Expect the worst, hope for the best. Yeah. Um, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. You know, that's the other thing. If I if I say out loud, I don't know if I can do it. And then I do, it's like, oh yeah, I'm like extra proud of myself. So yeah. maybe it's a, you know, a coping mechanism on the result side of things, you yeah. know, that if I'm not expecting it and then I do, it's, you know, I've, I've
0: reinforced myself in a way. Mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder, you know, uh, because of the work I do, I'm often trying to pump people up and make them believe in themselves and one of the things I always find kind of interesting is the further along you get, there's sort of different types of coping mechanisms. Some people feel that if they are really confident, everything will be okay. But then they find that if they find that place, they don't have enough edge when they go in. Some people don't want to appear cocky, so they don't want to say, oh, I'm you know really great. Some people... Don't like the pressure of saying that they don't want to say it and then it not to come through so one of the things about mental game i think is so important is the idea of customizing it for yourself because it's really what puts you in the right headspace to run
1: yeah i as the as i made the comment the people around me know me really well when i get kind of pessimistic they'll they'll look around if there's like a, a newer person to the group and and they'll go, she's always like this, don't worry. <laughs> you know, she's always like this. Not because, because they'll see, oh my gosh, you know, if Jen Crank's worried about this course, what hope do I have for it? And and uh, my good friend, Abby, just looks, at, she's always like this, don't worry, she'll be fine. Um, because she knows that's what works for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and then I reinforce the behavior if I do in fact go out there and have a decent run. Um, you know, I reinforce that. So luckily the people uh, close to me know me and have learned that that is... That is my style. Um, You know, I think the other kind of balancing act on mindset is, you know, I've had a lot of great dogs. I've had a lot of great success. Um, You know, my my relationships with my dog is number one, but my resume is pretty good too. And I always just keep thinking like, at some point my luck's going to run out. Like I did not get here you know, on, on sheer talent. I sit there and I think my luck's going to run out. You know, I've had some amazing years and I think, oh, I will never be able to top that year. Um, And then I do. And so I'm like, surely my luck will run out. But then, then I sit back and think, well, maybe it's not luck. You know, maybe it's skill. Maybe I got here because I've worked hard and I've studied hard and I've trained hard and that it's more than luck. You know, I've been able to repeat that. So I kind of go back and forth on, you know, what side I'm on. But, you know, when I, when I'm down, I'm like, okay, I'm going to run out. I've had too many great runs. You know, I was seven, eight, seven for eight going into finals at Westminster. Seven for eight's pretty awesome with four different dogs. So I'm like, surely my luck's going to run out. And then it's like, no, I went seven for eight because we trained hard. We prepped. We've been working for this. Yeah, um, I'm on a roll. You know, so it, it, I think it's absolutely finding what works for each person. And I mean, you you know me quite well, for those listeners that don't know, I have done some coaching with Kathy. So you know me quite well, and uh, kind of my style. And I'm sure that you have worked with people that it's very different than what I have. So I don't think it is a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what's so great about all of your content is you've been able to look at it from different perspectives and know that everybody's different, where if I tried to take my mindset and put it on my student, that may not be what's best for them because we are all a little bit different. So I like to teach the agility. We're going to keep coming to you for mindset work. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'll pay you later
0: for that one. But, (laughs) but, uh, you know, it is interesting. And I'm really glad you brought that up because, so often people feel they're not good enough if their mindset is different from somebody else's. So they say, you know, oh, well, I I don't think the way Jen Crank thinks, so I must be thinking wrong. And that's something I really do try and encourage people to think about is the idea of, there's not really a right or wrong when it comes to mindset. It has to do with simply looking at what does it produce? I recently posted something on, on my Facebook page about, And it was a Zig Ziglar quote that remember that failure is an event, not a person. And too many people think that they're a failure because they aren't doing it the way someone else is doing it. But the truth is most people actually separate themselves at the top because they're doing it a little bit different because they've been okay being authentic and doing it the way that works for them.
1: Yeah, I think that can be like the biggest takeaway for anybody listening, but I, you know, what I try to tell my students and, um, what you're kind of reiterating here is that we are all going to do it different. There is no right system for mindset or, you know, there is no, um, you know, mental management, you know, if we use kind of that term like, oh, there's, there's this one program for this perfect system for mental management. And that might work for a lot, but as you said, it's not the process. It's what the process process is producing. And I think that is huge for people to understand. And so many people are trying to mimic what someone else is doing. And I, I think that, I mean, you know, we talked about, you know, when you get in those situations and you get with the people at the top, I've learned a lot with being with a lot of great handlers and trainers that I realized, oh yeah, they're equally great at the sport and great trainers and great handlers. And now that I'm standing here at this event with them in the finals with them, they're doing it very different than me, mm-hmm. but they're still here and, and really being eye opening So getting a chance to be around those people and learn that everybody does it a little different and doing it a little bit different is potentially what put
0: them in that position yes. to be there. Yes, absolutely. So final question I have for you, and this has to do a little bit with perspective. I mean, you're a mom, you have yes. like a business, you, you know have a real life, beyond agility, Um, you know, things happen in life, obviously, how has that um, kind of life stuff impacted your ability to keep agility in perspective? Because you have the other side of it too, of being a business owner. And, you know, sometimes I know a lot of agility coaches feel like their business is kind of dependent on the results and that can put a lot of pressure on them. Um, So how have you managed to kind of keep perspective on kind of life and this is your business and also also your hobby in a way too. So
1: I have had to work very hard, full disclosure. I've had to work very hard on, uh, realizing the perspective of things. Um, it is something that I've had to work hard on, um, for me. And I would tell everybody and have told many, many people that for me, the day I had a kid, everything changed for me. Um, Prior to that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was on my first world team at 17. I was teaching at 15. I taught agility to get my way through college. Um, And I always felt like agility defined me. I needed to go to that event um, and I needed to do well because that's what people were going to remember. Or that if I didn't do well, people weren't going to want the lessons and the classes. And then, you know, your your brain gets out of control. Then I'll be out of work. And if I can get pay the bills and it spirals. Um, When I had my son, that was really monumental for me, realizing that agility or whatever sport or hobby, Mm -hmm. that is an event. That is one weekend. That is an event. It will come, it will happen and it will pass and we will move on. But when you have a kid... That's that's forever. <laughs> that's not even, you know, they always say, Oh, that's 18 years. No, no, that's forever. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden that became very eye-opening to the fact that, you know, yeah, I mean, we wanna do well at nationals. You know, they always or, or any big event, you know, you'll have the people, Oh, it's a it's the journey, it's not the destination. Yeah, well, tell that to the person who just <laughs> spent six months waking up at 6am to go to the gym to train to drop the extra money on classes and seminars and all yeah tell that to them that this is just the journey and not the destination though no, i mean and and yeah then we want to do well <laughs> yeah exactly exactly you know so yeah you want to do well but when when you really realize that you have a kid and I have to raise that kid to be the best person that he can be a member of society and that that my husband and I are responsible for that and that that can go on to make an impact you know what he grows up to be and the changes that he can potentially make that's forever that's not a weekend that's not a event um so yeah it's great to do well and your sport or your hobby it's great to have a good weekend but um I I always tell my husband he is the Best person I can call, whether it is a high, and I've just won something. I won't tell you what he said when I won Westminster because he we didn't have a clue. And it was or very was entertaining. Where's my entertainer button? Um, no, I just, he was clueless. Oh. I won. And I was like, I just won. He's like, oh, okay. So does that mean you get to go to finals? I'm like, no, we won finals. <laughs> he's like, oh, I thought that was tomorrow night. And I was like, no, like he just was clueless. But he's also yeah. so good when I have a horrible run. I always, I wish he traveled to more big events uh, with me because he he's, he's my best coach. He's the best coach I can have. And really is. And he's, he's just so like matter of fact and blase about the whole thing. Kind of like when I won, I'm excited and he's like, Oh, okay. And, but it's also great when I have a really horrible run or a really bad run. Um, but, you know, it, it is, it is helpful to, to put it into perspective. And I think, you know, there's a lot of dog people that don't have kids. So I'm not like out there trying to say, Hey guys, have a kid. And it'll all be put in perspective, but but in the standpoint of like a dog and a dog's life, right. Yeah. You know, we all hope our dogs make it to 15, 16 and 17, right. that we can have these great dogs that can, they can be good members of society. We can take them on walks. You know, we can do all these things, you know, that, that event is, that is one event. That's not going to be what defines the dog. You know, um, I, think some of the biggest memories that I have about people and dogs is that relationship that I know they have. You know, you always kind of you could almost holler out any name. And there's one dog that I instantly would holler, you know, that that kind of name game, name association game. You holler the name, I could holler the dog. That's what I remember but I don't you couldn't holler a dog name and I could be able to recite their resume. Like you could say a dog's name and I wouldn't be able to tell you necessarily, oh yeah, they won this event on this year at this jump height. Great. But I can tell you with a person, the relationship that dog had. So, you know, I think, you know, when when you set back, I always say the five minute rule after a local run, but it's kind of like a five day rule at a big event. Yeah. You know, you're so down or you're so high. yeah, And then, you know, five days later you sit back and it's easier to have perspective. So I always tell people, you're not allowed to make any like rash decisions within five days. The number of people have told me within five days, of an event that they're going to quit agility. And I go, uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Sometimes I just <laughs> won't reply to their email for five days. Yeah. And then I reply back and I'll be like, Oh, are you still feeling? And they're like, well, no, I'm, I'm okay now. And I'm like, that's what I thought. Yeah. I'm over um, it. <laughs> but yeah. And, and as far as like the profession thing, you know, what I have learned is Some of the people that I want to learn from, some of the people that I inspire to learn from and get educated by and train with aren't the ones out there winning. So I feel like I need to be winning. I need to be doing great in order for my profession to succeed. But in reality, if I look at who I want to um, train with or who I want to work with, it's not necessarily the people that are winning. You know, I've said for many, many, many years that, you know, people would come to me, I'd get an email after a big event. Hey, would you travel to our state or our club? Could you come teach a seminar? And I, I literally would write back and say, I'm honored. However, if you want to be like me, you know, I'm using that generically, trying not to sound arrogant. You should actually, you should reply, you should email my coach. Right. Right. Because my coach is who got me here. Brilliant. Right. So, don't come to you know that person go to the coach you know you can be a fantastic coach or instructor or trainer and not necessarily performing the results so you know it's um a lot of times in dog breeding you know they say if you really love a dog don't go breed to that dog find out its parents 100 you know we we hear that a lot right like Mm -hmm. we can be very logical about that but then you'll want to train with somebody who won well no go see who's training the winner yeah um you know and so the number of times for me you know go to Linda Mecklenburg, go to Linda Mecklenburg, go to Linda Mecklenburg. She's the best. She has the coaching. She has the education. She has the training, the knowledge. And that's what I would write back and tell them. You don't want me to come teach for your club. You want Linda Mecklenburg to come teach for your club. She's the one responsible for where I am now. Um, So when I think of it that way, that's when I kind of realize. you know what? It's okay if I have a few mistakes or fall flat on my face at Westminster. It'll be all right.
0: Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. That's brilliant. And I think also the people who are serving and getting them results and helping them improve. If you are always thinking of that and your own ego isn't involved, you're just thinking about how am I helping these people get better? You'll always have business. And that's something I think you do. You're humble, you're talented, you're skilled. And I just think you're absolutely wonderful. So thank you for being here and for all this wisdom that you've just passed on because I couldn't agree with you more. Just fantastic. Thank you so much for
1: having me. So glad I could give a little bit of insight into uh, some perspective
0: of what goes on in my brain. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for joining me on the Kathy Keats show. I hope you enjoyed that episode and you can find Jennifer Crank on her website at incredipause.com. You'll be able to find that link in the show notes. Also make sure that you check out Jen on the Bad Dog Agility podcast. For myself, make sure that you go to kathykeets.com slash support the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can buy me a coffee. All right. Thank you very much again for joining me and I'll talk to you soon.